And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Before we begin our study of John 10 this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for a study of God's Word. Utilize 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, for the recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit, restoration of the spiritual life, so that we can take in the Word of God this morning. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is through Your Word that we understand we can properly interpret all the details of life. The psalmist said, it is in thy light that we see light. And Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit to indwell and to fill us. He is our teacher. He is our guide. He is the one who helps us to understand the things of your word. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might understand these things clearly and respond positively, that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John is a profound writer. One of the most incredible things that I have noticed as we have gone through this study is the literary skill of this particular writer. John is, is deceptively simple, at least in the original Greek. And one of the things that happens whenever you take Greek, you go to seminary or Bible college, you take first year Greek, and as soon as you make it through the first year grammar... The first thing you start translating is John because he writes a very simple, in a very simple style, and he uses a somewhat limited vocabulary, at least in comparison to the Apostle Paul or to Peter. And I think Peter probably learned uh, Greek somewhat later in life. He has a much more complex, convoluted style, much like somebody who's not writing in, in their original uh, language. But John writes in a rich, profound way. And sometimes I think we get a kind of a funny view of Scripture and we think that it's all just sort of superficial and easy to understand. But remember, God is the author. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is God-breathed. And just like any piece of literature, there are all sorts of themes and sub-themes that are woven together in a rich tapestry of meaning. And I find this to be even more true about John. The more I study through this, sometimes I wish I could go back and teach a passage maybe three weeks in a row, simply because after I get through studying it one week, I go back the next week and I'm preparing for the next uh, week's message and I think back on what I just taught and things began to come into focus that hadn't come into focus the week before. Because, and, and it's just that way you go through more and more I plunge into this gospel, the more we see. And I was thinking about this yesterday as I began 
to look at John 10.22, and there is something very subtle that happens in John 10.22 that a Gentile reader in the 20th century isn't going to get when he starts reading this. And it's a powerful point that John is reminding us of, but if you're not aware of Jewish tradition, it's going to go right over your head. So in preparation for that, we need to go back to John chapter 1 and look at the prologue. For it is in the prologue that this theme is introduced. Look at John chapter 1, verse 4. He introduces the theme of light. Now remember the purpose that John is writing this gospel for is to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. He says in John 20, 31, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So whatever else we can say about the Gospel of John, one thing is certain. John believes there is more than sufficient evidence given in this Gospel to convince anyone that Jesus is exactly who He claims to be. And as we have seen in past study, He organizes his material around seven different signs plus the sign of the resurrection in order to give substantiating evidence as he would in a court of law in order to demonstrate his premise that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. Part of that sub-theme is that as the Messiah, as the second person of the Trinity, it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who reveals the Father. This is a critical sub-theme of revelation and illumination, and it falls under the doctrine of light. Doctrine of light in John's Gospel. Look at how it's introduced in John 1.4. In Him was life, and the life, that is the life that is self-existent in Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, One point I made when we first began our study of this gospel back in uh, a little over a year ago was that in these first four verses, we're looking at the pre-incarnate Christ. We're not even looking at at Christ as the incarnate Son of God yet. So this is referring the life that we're talking about here is that eternal life that belongs to God and God alone, that He is the source of all life. He is the self-existent one. And it is his life by its very nature that is self-revelatory. You can't escape this aspect of its nature. God, by nature, is revealing himself. Later in 1 John chapter 1, John will say that God is light. And there he's using the light metaphor to emphasize God's holiness. But they're both true. The revelatory fact of his holiness, his integrity... All work together. It is part of God's nature to reveal Himself. And because that is classified as light, it is a clear revelation. It is not distorted. It is not obscure. It is not obfuscated. It is clear and profound. And as we shall see, it's clear to everyone. Now, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. It's a present tense verb indicating continual action. 
I think that um, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, from this we learn, first of all, that Jesus is the source of life in all of its categories. Colossians 1.16 and 17 tells us that He is the one who made everything. It's fascinating to trace certain themes of Scripture in Genesis 1. God speaks, Elohim says, and it is through His Word, it is through words that God creates. And who is the Word? The Lagos of God. It is the second person of the Trinity. And then in Colossians 1.16 and 17, we read that in Him, all things were created by Him and of Him and to Him. So, He is the source of life of all its categories and the source of illumination for all mankind. We also see from verse 5 that this light continually shines. Now, the verb here is the present active indicative. One of the things that is important in the study of the Scriptures and language is to look at the original because even the grammar teaches us phenomenal points of doctrine. As a present tense, now this is one of the things that always sort of causes a little stumbling for novice Greek students. A present tense verb can be used about nine different ways. And usually you just say it's durative or continuous action. And that's true here that the present tense does indicate that this is continual action. But another nuance of the present tense is what is called a gnomic present. And a gnomic present indicates a continual principle, something that is normal through all time. And that's what we see here. The light shines as a general principle. The light continually shines in the darkness. So here we have God, the second person of the Trinity, and throughout all of human history, from Adam all the way through, He is continually revealing Himself. The light always shines in the darkness. And look at the response, continual, characteristic response of darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it, doesn't understand it. Incomprehension. Darkness is it, it's incomprehensible. As part of incomprehension, there is rejection. God continually illumines men. Men continually reject that illumination. Now, this is clearly taught in Romans chapter 1. We need to turn to Romans 1 and see how Paul expresses this. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And there we have a genitive, a masculine genitive plural noun, anthropon, from anthropos, meaning men or mankind, 
and then it's qualified by a uh, relative participial phrase who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a present active participle. The present tense of the participle indicates contemporaneous action with the main verb, which is, is revealed. So, you see this continuousness throughout all of human history. That's the point. It's from the verb kateko, which means to hold down, to suppress, to withhold, or to repress. So the wrath of God is revealed against men, and these men who receive the wrath of God are characterized by the fact that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean? That means that in order to suppress, repress, or to hold down the truth, they have to have the truth. It has to be there. So they are actively engaged. It's a present active participle, which means that these men are performing the action, and they are consciously engaged, or volitionally engaged, rather, in suppressing the truth. And then look at 119, because, and there we have the Greek word dihati, which is the strongest causal particle in the Greek language. The strongest way to present cause. Because that which is known about God is evident to them or within them. This is N plus the dative of the third person plural pronoun, which indicates that they have a knowledge about God, who He is, and His existence within every single human being. This includes the most devout atheist on the planet. No matter how much they declaim the knowledge of God, at some point in their life, they were fully conscious of the existence of God because the Scripture says they knew it clearly. It was made evident within them for explanation, for God made it evident to them. And there we have the aorist active indicative of the Greek phanerao, which means to reveal or to make clear. And God is the subject. It's an active voice, meaning that God performs the action. God specifically makes His existence clear to every single human being. God made it evident to them. And then verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His sovereignty, His righteousness, His justice, His love, His eternality, His omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability, and veracity... His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His omnipotence, and divine nature have been what? Clearly seen. Clearly seen. It's no confusion. It's not obscure. It's not clouded. It's not fuzzy. It's clear to every single human being. Has been clearly seen being understood That means that every human being understands. Now, with the exclusion of those who, because of birth defect or some other problem, do not have the uh, mental capacity to understand, 
But other than that exception, every single human being at some point reaches a stage of God consciousness where they clearly understand that God exists. And they see this as proclaimed through what God has made so that, result clause, they are without excuse. That means no one has an excuse for saying, well, I didn't have enough information. God, I just didn't understand that you really existed. God says, you not only understood it clearly, but you had more than enough information and enough information for you to be held accountable for it so that you are without excuse. They have The point of this is that every human being that, re, that is an unbeliever has done so on the basis of their own volition. Romans one twenty one. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile. That means that they exercised their volition negatively, rejected the existence of God, and became empty, vain in their speculations. They replaced the knowledge of God with their own speculative theories about origins, about creation, about ultimate things, ultimate reality. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, no matter how high their IQ is, no matter how many PhDs they have from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge. The scripture says they are fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, what I want you to realize from this is that when you are engaged in any sort of witnessing situation, the person that you are witnessing to may not be willing to admit it at this point in time. They may have covered up their knowledge of God with so much rationalization and scar tissue for 20, 30 years of life that they no longer remember the fact that they once knew that God existed and they may not even want to, out of arrogance, admit that God exists. What the Scripture tells you is that they know. You don't have to convince them that God exists. They already know it. You've won that much of the battle. And what's going to happen is they're going to ask you a question. They're going to say, prove to me that God exists. And at that point, you're in, it's a chess game. See, they've just asked you the wrong question. You don't answer it. Why? Scripture says they already know. If you answer their question, what you have basically done is buy into their assumption that there isn't enough evidence. But the Scripture says there's more than enough evidence. And so if you grant their assumption, you've already put your queen in jeopardy in terms of presenting the case for Christianity. Now, of course, God the Holy Spirit is sovereign, and we all have made those sort of uh, wrong moves many times when we witness. I certainly have, and I'm sure that some of you have. And God the Holy Spirit in His sovereignty overrides our limitations. But we need to be aware that that's the way things are. That the Scripture presents the fact that there is a continual revelation of God. This is the point... In John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Paul said that the, from, since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. But even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They're saying the same thing. And then John 1.7, we read that he, that is John the Baptist, came as a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist's ministry is related to this illumination. And then in verse 8, we read, He, that is John the Baptist, was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. So even though the light continually reveals itself to mankind, there is still the need for the witness, the testimony, for us to be engaged in witnessing. Now the incarnation of Christ then is the basis for all condemnation to mankind. John 1.9 says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, what are the mechanics here? We see underlying this verse the principle of common grace. And that is the illumination of every man to the existence of God and the reality of who Jesus is. You can't avoid it. The unbeliever can't avoid it. It is proclaimed loud and clear, and God is making it evident to them. But the reason they don't admit it is because of negative volition. See, it comes back to volition, not evidence. See, sometimes we get caught in the trap when we're witnessing to people, and I know in talking with some of you that you've felt this tension, that you're witnessing to somebody, you keep thinking, if I just had the right argument, if I just had the right evidence, or if I just knew enough, then I could convince this person of the truth. And there you've made a mistake. Because even when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth and gave incredible evidence of who he was, who he is, and what he was going to do, men rejected it. Because the issue isn't reason. The issue isn't having the right arguments. The issue is spiritual and it has to do with volition whether or not man is willing to accept Christ and submit to the claims that that God makes to be the final authority in the universe the scripture portrays for us that man is made in the image of God now think about what that means Genesis 1 26 and 27 God said let us make man in our image and according to our likeness We are a reflection of God. So in our immaterial makeup, we reflect the essence of God. So that what happens is that every time an unbeliever looks at the world around him, looks at the stars in the skies, looks at the trees, looks at everything, it resonates in his soul with the reality of God because Scripture says that soul is a reflection of God. So when the unbeliever hears doctrine, hears the truth of God's word or sees it, there's something in his soul that reverberates and resonates with that truth. And what Paul says is that the person on negative volition is actively squelching that, repressing it, suppressing it. They're actively engaged in denial that that's happening. And that's why there is such an antagonistic response 
when you bring the gospel up to certain people and why they react so on. They may not even be conscious of it, but they're actively engaged in suppressing this. And as soon as you come along and start talking about Christ or talking about the Scriptures, you're bringing this to the surface, and it's, it's like somebody grating their fingernails on a chalkboard in their soul, and it just rattles everything in their being, and they have to squash it again and squash you in the process. Now, John has expla- introduces the theme in the first chapter, and then in chapter 3, he develops it a little more. Turn over to John 3.19. We get a little more foreshadowing in this chapter. We've already seen that the light illumines every man, which is making God evident to them, the existence, the reality of God is clear. There's a consciousness in every man that resonates with the existence of God. And then in John 3.19 we read, And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. That's Paul saying, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. But not everybody does, but the majority do. They reject the testimony of the light. John 3.20 For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there is a reaction in man to exposure. Light is illuminating and it exposes us in all of our creaturely dependence And the person who has rejected God, who at the point of God consciousness has gone negative, or who at the point of gospel hearing has gone negative, is in reaction to that. John 3.21 says, But he who practices, and it's it's not practice, that's a bad translation. Practice would be the Greek word proso, which means to practice. And here we just have the simple word poieo, which means to do. It, It can have a number of different nuances depending on the context, but it simply means the person who does the truth, and it refers to the simple, positive volition at God consciousness. The person who does the truth, who responds to the truth, comes to the light. Responding to the truth, doing the truth, it's hearing the gospel, responding positively, and coming to the light who is Jesus Christ. It's another way of ta- a metaphorical way of talking about trusting in Christ as your Savior. He who d- practices the truth. See, if it's practice the truth, it indicates works. That's why that's a bad translation. That indicates that you do good, you do good, you do good, and then when Jesus comes, you just naturally go to Jesus because you're such a good person. So pro- it's not, but it's not proso. It's poieo, and it's not emphasizing works. It's emphasizing positive volition in God's consciousness. He who does the truth, who responds to the truth, comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Then in John 8, we get a little more development of the doctrine of light. We've had the foreshadowing. We've understood the doctrine of revelation and illumination and the doctrine of rejection and suppression of truth. John 8.12, we're prepared now for Jesus' pronouncement. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And there Jesus ties light and life back together again. John 9.5, Jesus says, While I am in the world, 
I am the light of the world. And we're in John 10, but when we get to John 11, Jesus will say, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. So we see this theme of light over and again. John is almost hitting us between the eyes with light. So in his subtlety, just so we don't get bored, become a little callous to all of this talk about light, he's going to become very subtle and sneak and do a sneak attack on us. John 10.22, our passage for the morning. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, we have been studying the events from really John 8, early in the morning of that particular day, early in October, after the Feast of Booths, the first day after the Feast of Booths. It began with the woman who was brought in adultery. There was a confrontation Jesus claimed to be God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. His claim to deity. They picked up stones to stone him. He left the temple. We have the um, diagram here where Jesus comes out of the temple. He's here. He comes up by the sheep gate on his way out. This is Solomon's portico along here, which is important for this passage. Uh, It's a covered colonnade. Out here somewhere, he heals the blind man. And then we have the whole episode with the blind man and then the Good Shepherd discourse. And the Pharisees reject the evidence before their eyes that this blind man from birth has now been healed. They just It's clear. It's evident. There's more than enough testimony. And they just say, no, it didn't happen. They just reject it. It's not a matter of evidence, folks. It's not a matter of reason. It's a matter of volition. And so Jesus gives somewhere in this area the discourse on the Good Shepherd to explain the dynamics of what just took place with the blind man. And then that scene ends, and we come to 1022, and 1022 is approximately two to three months after 1021. John begins with the, in the Greek with the temporal particle tote which doesn't indicate that these events transpired immediately after the preceding. In fact, we know from the text that about two to three months have gone by. The Feast of Booze was in late September, early October, and this is the Feast of Dedication, which takes place in late December around the winter solstice. In between this time, in this time period in between, Jesus left the hostile environment of Jerusalem and Judea and was engaged in a ministry to the people across the Jordan in the region of Perea. We know that from Luke chapters 12 through 13. But when John says the Feast of the Dedication, he's speaking about the festival we call this called today Hanukkah, which is the Hebrew for dedication. We know from Josephus that it had another name called the Festival of Lights. Now do you understand? See how subtle John is. He just slips that to us. As soon as he mentions this is the Feast of Dedication, he's reminding us that we're still talking about Jesus illuminating the truth and we're still talking about the rejection, the darkness that does not comprehend it and that the darkness that flees from it and is repressing it. Now, if you don't know a little background, 
that just goes right past you and you miss the point of the passage. The Feast of Dedication, according to Josephus, was called the Feast of Lights, and the rabbis had another name for it. In the Talmud, it's called the Feast of Illumination. See how subtle it is? I mean, this is phenomenal. This is great literature. This makes Dickens look like a, a literary wannabe. This is incredible stuff. And you have to know, this is why you have to know the original languages. And you have to know the background and history in order to understand the dynamics of what's going on. At a surface level, you can pull certain things out of the Scriptures. But if you're going to have doctrine for spiritual growth, you have to know much more. So John is reminding us in a very subtle way that he is still talking about illumination. He is still talking about the fact that Jesus has clearly revealed himself through his works and his words. He's healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. He has fed the multitudes. He has walked on water. He has controlled the elements. He has stilled the storm. He has healed lepers. He's healed the sick. He's healed the lame. He's cast out demons. And he's even healed a man born blind before the eyes of the Pharisees. Yet, continually, despite all the empirical evidence, the religious leaders have refused to believe Him. Now, the Feast of Dedication is a very patriotic time in Israel. It would be somewhat reminiscent of the Fourth of July for us. It was a memorial to a time of tremendous national victory and triumph. And as they looked back to this time of national military victory and triumph, it would also tend to bring to the foreground their hopes for freedom from Rome today, and thus elevating their messianic expectations. Historical background. In 165 B.C., or almost 200 years before this time, the uh, Greco-Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. After Alexander the Great died, his great empire was broken up between four of his generals. And one of the divisions was basically Syria, the area north of of Israel included that whole area around the Mediterranean. And these were the Antiochian leaders. And Antiochus Epiphanes had a, specific, had a very particular anti-Semitic trait. He outlawed all Jewish ritual. And he, after he captured Jerusalem, he erected an idol on the altar in the, on the altar of burnt offering in the temple. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar and scattered pig's blood, which is unclean on the Mosaic Law, all over the altar, which desecrated the altar. That was the near fulfillment of the uh, abomination of desolation predicted by the prophet Daniel some three or four hundred years earlier. At this time, there was a priestly family in Israel that are known as the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmoneans raised a cry of revolt and brought together an army which eventually defeated the Syrians and they threw them out of the land. Afterwards, this priestly family went in and cleansed the temple and restored the sacrifices. But as they were cleansing the temple, when it was time to rededicate the temple to the Lord after its cleansing, they could only find one flagon of oil to burn in the great candelabra, the candlestick, the golden candlestick, 
that burned in the Holy of Holies. And so they, were, they declared one day of dedication. But at the end of that one day, they discovered that the flagon of oil was still full. It was a miracle. It lasted another day. It lasted for eight days. That's the basis for the non-biblical feast and festival of, of Hanukkah. And it is the Feast of Dedication because it's a reminder of how God miraculously supplied oil for these eight days for the rededication of the temple. In their celebration of it in every Jewish home, depending on how, which side you took on certain theological matters, you either lit eight candles on the first day and then backed it down to one going through the process, or you lit one the first day and then moved it through to eight by the last day. In some homes, they would do a multiplication of ten. They would start off with ten the first day, twenty candles the second day, thirty candles, forty. And what do you have? You have lights everywhere. And in the midst of this festival of lights, we have this particular episode where those in the darkness are denying that they see the light. It is in contrast to the blind man who sees the light in chapter 9, and the Pharisees who are in the light love the darkness in chapter 10. John 10.23, we're given the time frame. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple at the portico of Solomon. This Goes, this was in one area, this area right outside the temple here, dated all the way back to Solomon's original temple. It survived the destruction of the temple under, by Nebuchadnezzar back in 586 B.C., but it did not survive the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. under Titus. It was an enclosed portico so that you could walk there in all sorts of weather. So it's a cold December day, and Jesus begins to walk. It's an ingressive, imperfect tense, possibly a dramatic imperfect, indicating Jesus beginning to walk in the temple, and the religious leaders have just been waiting for this opportunity. Everything he said in his confrontation back in the Good Shepherd analogy has been rankling for three months. It's been eating away at them, and now they're going to get him. Remember, all the way back in John 6, this would have been 18 months before, when Jesus healed the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, back then John told us that they determined to kill him. So this is not a group of objective religious seekers who want to know the truth. This is a group of men who have already determined that they are going to take him out and they're just looking for the opportunity to kill him. And as soon as he shows up, look at what happens in John 10:24. The Jews therefore gathered around him. Now, doesn't that sound sweet? The Jews gathered and one came from here and two from there and three or four over here and they just sort of gathered around and sat there to listen to what Jesus said. That's what it sounds like in the English. In the Greek... You have the aorist active indicative of the verb kuklao. K-U-K-L-O-O. And it comes from the noun kuklos, which means to circle. Circle. Kuklos. It's 
where they got Ku Klux Klan. Just a little added note there. Just a little alliteration there for those of you who aren't from the South. Ku Klux, it means a circle. It means to surround. They surrounded and trapped him. They were just wait. As soon as he shows up at the temple and begins to walk through the portico of Solomon, word goes out, and the Jewish religious leaders immediately come from all points in Jerusalem, and they surround him. They they enclose him in this tight circle. There's no place for him to go. They're tired of his sophisticated arguments where he overturns their reasoning and slips away, and he's not going to get away this time. There's no place for him to go. We've got him trapped. So the Jews surrounded him and trapped him and were saying to him, Now listen to this question. How long will you keep us in suspense? Now that's not really a very good translation. It's close. It gets the essence of the Greek idiom. But it sounds like they're being very objective. Well, we're not sure yet. You just haven't given us enough information. Now, how does that sound like anybody you've ever witnessed to? I, I, I just don't have enough evidence. I'd really like to believe in Jesus. I'd really like to believe that God exists, but, but I just need a little more evidence. They're not being objective, folks. They've already made a decision. They're not seeking. They have already determined to reject Him. They're not asking for more information. This is not some sweet little encounter because we really want to know the truth. They're asking... Uh, it's, it's very interesting what they ask. The Greek idiom is very difficult to translate. Literally, it means, until what time will you keep our soul lifted up? Until what time will you keep our soul lifted up? We would translate that in our vernacular. How long are you going to keep us in the air? You know, we're, we're just on tenor hooks here. Come on, Jesus, tell us who you really are. As if he hasn't made that clear. They're really asking, how long are we going to remain in the dark? And Jesus knows, you've had more than enough illumination. They're claiming a lack of light, and they're standing in front of the light of the world. They're claiming ignorance, but they have no basis for that. They have heard the words and seen the works of Jesus. They're not asking for truth. They want to incriminate him. If he says that he is the Messiah, if he makes a clear statement, I am the Messiah, then they will have reason to charge him with blasphemy, which is exactly what happens three months from now when they take him before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas asks him, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am he. At that point, the Sanhedrin meets, they take a vote, All the two men vote to convict him of blasphemy and they take him to Pilate for execution. So Jesus knows that his time's not right. Jesus is in control of the situation. That's why Jesus does not answer them directly. And it's fascinating to watch how Jesus, in the process of this discussion with these hostile unbelievers, does not grant them their assumptions. And that tells us something about when we're witnessing to people, just because you're talking to somebody, don't get caught up with the idea that you need to answer all their questions. When they ask you a question like, how long are you going to, or have you stopped beating your wife? Think about it. I know I had delayed reaction last week. However you answer that, you incriminate yourself. 
And see, there's some questions that unbelievers ask that no matter how you answer them, you've lost the argument. And Jesus doesn't grant their assumption. He's very subtle. He remains in control. He has to diffuse the whole situation because he has to fulfill the Old Testament pattern and he has to die on Passover. So he has to diffuse the situation so that he's not convicted for another three months. Verse 25, Jesus answered them and says, I told you, and you do not believe. In other words, I made it clear. He doesn't admit anything. He doesn't say, I am the Messiah. He just says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. Now, first thing we realize, Jesus doesn't back down. He's not backing away from the confrontation. In chapter 5, he clearly stated his deity. He stated it so clearly that they began to stone him, and he slipped away. In chapter 8, again, he clearly states his deity, and they understand it, and they reach down to pick up stones, and he slips away. The issue isn't that they need more light or more evidence. They have more than enough. The issue is they've rejected the light that they have been given. Jesus doesn't answer their question for two reasons. First of all, he sees the trap and he's, seeking, he's trying to avoid it because he has to control the time of his death. And second reason he doesn't answer the question, he rejects the assumption that underlies the question. What's the assumption? That there's not enough evidence yet of who he is. And he rejects that. And it's that latter assumption which he addresses. See, when he responds by saying, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, he is specifically attacking the and stating that their assumption is invalid. He said, there's more than enough evidence the works that I do bear witness of me. Now we come to verse 26. Verse 26 reads, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now this verse is used by some people to talk about the doctrine of election. But this isn't talking about the doctrine of election. We have to understand and interpret the verse in context. Volition, the volition, the negative volition of the Pharisees, not God's volition in election. Jesus stated who these people were in John 8.43. Remember? He said, you are of your father, the devil. They're not of his sheep because they have rejected him. They have exercised negative volition at God consciousness. Even though they were religious and they were moral, they were exercising negative volition from God consciousness. So Jesus says, they are of their father the devil. They're religious, pious, moral. They're leaders of the people. But he equated them in the analogy of the sheep to the hireling, the thief, and the robber. They are not the sheep. You have to understand John 10, 26, in the context of John 10 and the whole story about the sheep and the shepherd. He says, you're not my sheep, you're the robbers. And why are you the robbers? Because you don't believe. 
My sheep hear my voice. And he goes back to the analogy of the shepherd that would have a cry like, Beto, 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 and would walk through a, a sheepfold. And there might be sheep from five or six different herds all mixed in together. And those that were his would hear and respond positively. And that illustrated what took place in the life of the blind man. The blind man was not a believer, and yet when he heard the gospel and Jesus says, Do you believe that I'm the Son of God? The man responded, Yes, I believe. It is the volition of the individual that determines salvation, not some predetermined, fatalistic doctrine of election. See, that's the problem with Calvinism. There is a doctrine of election. And it has to do with the foreknowledge of God and the omniscience of God. And we will get into that probably next time when we're discussing eternal security. But it is not the fact that God makes the decision and you don't. That somehow in eternity past, God made a decision to decide who would believe and who wouldn't. And those who believe are the only ones who respond. That's fatalism and that destroys human volition. Then we come to verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. This is one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture related to the doctrine of the security of the believer. We don't have time to cover the entire doctrine of eternal security this morning, but we will begin and then conclude with that next time. The illustration here is my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. When we respond in faith alone to Christ alone, we are following the Lord and He gives us something. This is in the Greek in John 10.28. The verb there is didomi, to give. And this always reminds us of grace. Grace is a free gift. It is the gift of God. It is not earned. It is not deserved. It's not worked for. It is a free gift. And at the moment of salvation, we see that God gives us eternal life. Jesus Christ gives us eternal life. He is not someone who takes back. It is not given conditionally. It is given unconditionally. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. This is an unconditional promise. It is something that is given for all eternity. He says, I don't give eternal life to them as long as they follow me. He doesn't say, I don't give eternal life to them until they sin. He doesn't say, I, don't give, I give eternal life to them until they commit certain sins. He says, I give unconditionally eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now, the image here is a Hebraism. It's an, anthropo, an anthropomorphism. Now, an anthropomorphism, I'll spell that for you. Anthropomorphism. From anthropos, meaning man, and morphism, meaning form. In an anthropomorphism, we attribute to God an aspect of human form, an eye, an ear, a nose, a hand, attributing to God a human form which God does not actually possess in order to communicate or teach something 
about the plan, policy, and procedure of God. So this does not mean that God actually has hands. This is just a figure of speech, and it goes back to a Hebraism, that's a Hebrew idiom, which indicates power. So what we're talking about in this passage is the omnipotence of God, the hand of God. The, hand, the power of God is greater than any other power in the universe. And so if we as believers are in the hand of God, in God's grip, there is no power on earth, not even our own will, that can remove us from the power of that grip. And this is then intensified. Not only are we in the grip of our Lord in John 10:28. But in John 10.29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. By analogy, it would be as if you put a penny in your hand and ask a six-month-old baby to pull it out. It's impossible. You're too powerful. Let's look at the doctrine of eternal security. Point number one. Definition. Eternal security is the work of God. Remember, salvation is the work of God. It is not your work. You are not saved because you believe. You are saved through faith. You are saved by God. He is the one who does all the work. We simply receive it by faith. It is the work of God which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. There is nothing that can be done to reverse or eradicate your salvation once you are saved. That's the definition. Now, we're going to understand the whys and wherefores of that when we get into the mechanics of the doctrine. But this is simply the definition. Since man does nothing to earn or deserve the free gift of salvation, he can do nothing to lose the free gift of salvation. And ultimately... If you're talking to somebody who has rejected eternal security, there is works hidden somewhere in their system. Very subtly, though it may be, somewhere they've hidden works. You're saved because of something you do. God does not give His gift with strings attached. He does not take back what He once gives. What He gives, He gives permanently. So eternal security is defined as an unbreakable relationship with the integrity of God. It is based upon His perfect righteousness, His absolute justice, and His immeasurable love. It is unbreakable because God will not break the relationship. It is based exclusively on who He is and not at all on who we are. Point number two. God the Father's purposes in salvation cannot be overridden. There is nothing greater than the plan of God. 
The same group that He foreknew, He predestines, calls, justifies, and redeems. This is the point in Romans 8, 29, and 30. For whom He foreknew. Notice the progression here. Those whom He foreknew. The same group of people. Let's say that's a hundred people. It's probably a hundred million but, or more, but let's say it's a hundred people just to keep it within figures we can understand. Those hundred people He foreknew. He also predestined. So, those hundred He predestines to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the character of Christ we're talking about in the Galatians series earlier in the morning. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined. Now, whom He predestined refers to the exact same group He foreknew. The same hundred people, no more, no less. He doesn't lose anybody. He doesn't gain anyone else. Whom He predestined, these He also called. Who does He call? The same hundred that are predestined, the same hundred He foreknew. Whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. Any more? Any less? Same number. These He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. God has a plan, and it is an unbreakable plan, and there is nothing man can do to tear that apart. Now, let's understand some dynamics here in this particular passage before we go on. For whom he foreknew. The foreknowledge of God is a subcategory of the knowledge of God. We call the overall category of the knowledge of God his omniscience. Omniscience means that God knows all the knowable. He knows all the possible. He knows all the actual. There is nothing that God does not know. In foreknowledge, though, as a subcategory of omniscience, God distinguishes between the actual and the possible. So in in the omniscience of God... He knows every contingency, every possibility, and every permutation out to infinity. Don't think about it too long. Your brain cells will fry. I'll see smoke coming out of your ears. Every possibility, every decision you could have made, every option you had sitting in front of you, God knows exactly what would have happened if you would taken any or every one of those options and what would have happened with every other option that that opened up. In foreknowledge, though, God knows the difference between the actual and the possible. All of human history is present to God in one eternal present. Here's a timeline. Here we have the beginning of creation, the end of creation. Here is eternal God above the timeline. He perceives the beginning and the end all in one eternal moment. Time is down here. God created time. God is atemporal. There is no before and after in God's knowledge. God's knowledge, He perceives everything in one eternal, simultaneous moment. And in His foreknowledge, He distinguishes between the actual and the possible. And He knows which of mankind, who of mankind, is positive at God consciousness and who would respond to whatever impetus is necessary to be saved. But in volition, there are many people who no matter how much evidence is in front of them, like the Pharisees, 
they will always reject it because they have made a decision to reject the truth. The issue is volition. So God in God in his foreknowledge distinguishes between the actual and the possible, knows which of his creatures is positive in God consciousness, and would respond to whatever impetus there might is necessary to be saved and those who would not. God desires that all men be saved, and so those who are foreknown are elect. God chooses them not on the not because they have faith. Scripture never says that. But through faith, He chooses those who would, under whatever conditions, respond positively. And God in His faithfulness will make sure that the positive person will receive the information necessary in order for them to believe. Everybody else, God knows that no matter how much evidence is in front of them, just think about all the evidence that was in front of Lucifer, and he was perfect, and he rejected it. So God knows that there is X number of people in human history who no matter how clear it is, and it's more than clear enough according to Romans 1, John 1, John 3, no matter how much evidence is presented, they will always reject it because that is their choice. So the issue boils down to human volition. Whom he foreknew. So God takes those whom he foreknew, he predestines them to a destiny to reflect the image of his Son, and these he will ultimately bring to glorification and none will be lost. That is the doctrine of the security of the believer because our security is not in our decision, it's not in our keep. It's not in each individual keeping himself. It is in the hand of God who is the one who saves us, who is the one who keeps us, and who is the one who will bring us to glorification. Now that covers the first two points on the doctrine of eternal security, and we'll come back next time and finish that up with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the understanding we have of your magnificent plan of salvation that you determined from eternity past this plan and you set it in motion. And you have based it all upon your grace and not upon our works and our merit and our goodness. Father, we thank you for the tremendous gift of salvation, the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, where he died as a substitute for our sins. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that clear. All you need to do is simply say, in thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I accept the free gift of eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would encourage us with the things that we have studied this morning. You would challenge us with them, that we may pursue a life that glorifies you in every thought and every deed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.